Hello, and welcome to today's VJ Hemonk podcast. We are a global open access video journal bringing you the latest in hematological oncology. In today's podcast, you will hear from leading experts Nitin Jain and Catherine Coombs, who discuss recent updates in chronic lymphocytic leukemia at the 2022 SOHO annual meeting. The experts comment on novel treatment strategies in CLL, the changing role of chemotherapy in the era of novel agents, and more. Hello, good morning. Myself, Nitin Jain from the Department of Leukemia at M. Nearson Houston. And today, I'm joined by Dr. Coombs, uh, who's going to be joining at UC Irvine as a faculty, um, managing patients with CLL. Um, um. So today, uh, we are going to discuss some of the upcoming issues and ongoing, I guess, debates in the context of CLL. So let me start with you, Kelly. So what are your thoughts about uh, chemotherapy, the role for chemotherapy? Obviously, the field is evolving rapidly. So how are you envisioning if there is any role for chemotherapy these days for CLL? Um, yeah, so that's, of course, an important question. Um, chemotherapy has been hugely important over the past several decades in CLL, but I will say in the future, I see it having a diminishing role, um, if no role at all. Um, and so, you know, um, this is based on a number of very well-conducted clinical trials. I think the nail in the coffin, so to speak, at least for my own practice, um, causing me to no longer use chemotherapy at all, um, was uh, the ECOG-1912 uh, study that compared abrutinib with rituximab to the prior gold standard chemoimmunotherapy regimen, FCR. And I think we all have known how efficacious abrutinib-containing regimens are in addition to other covalent BTK inhibitors. Um, but we hadn't seen a proven survival advantage with a very highly effective uh, chemoimmunotherapy. And so that trial led to um, a demonstrated improved overall survival for that abrutinib-containing regimen over FCR. Um, FCR certainly is efficacious, but has so many um, serious um, toxicities, many of which um, can be uh, permanent. Um, luckily, they're not common, um, but you know we do know a small incidence of patients can get MDS or AML. Um, and so um, with that, with the survival advantage, um, I, I don't use chemoimmunotherapy um, anymore. There are a number of other studies, including other comparators, such as uh, BR, um, including the very nicely done uh, CLL-13 trial, which has also been recently reported with uh, venetoclax-based uh, regimens being the comparator. And so for that reason, I see a diminishing role. Um, and in my own practice, I do not use chemoimmunotherapy at all. Yeah, I think that's the practice I think we are seeing across the United States. Maybe I think in Europe the practice is a bit different, where still I think they're using chemotherapy, uh, such as FCR, maybe bendamustrid rituximab, but at least in the United States, I think most of us have moved away from chemotherapy, right? So I think another important question comes up for newly diagnosed patients when you're deciding on the therapy for these patients. When do you decide, or how do you decide about time-limited therapy, which we know is venetoclax plus obinituzumab, we call it VENG, one-year time-limited therapy, versus a BTK inhibitor such as a brutinib and a calabrutinib, and we know zanobrutinib is coming along in a few months as well. So how do you discuss with your patients the, the differences of these two approaches and maybe tag along that, how do you differentiate between the BTKs at the same time as well? Uh, yeah, so I think that really stresses the importance of shared decision-making in CLL. We don't have head-to-head -head comparisons at this time between continuous treat-to-progression regimens, which is classically the BTK inhibitor monotherapies, 
versus time-limited venetoclax um, approaches. Um, we will have that in the future based on the CLL-17 trial. It's going to take a number of years for that to read out. And so knowing there isn't data to suggest superiority between one approach and the other, to me, it is really about what matters to the patient and then who, who is the patient. And so, of course, time at home is different. Um, uh, number of visits to medical centers are different, um, but also how important it is it to them uh, to be on something indefinitely, which uh, can you know, have advantages with respect to convenience, not needing to show up for the five-week Venn ramp up that can be burdensome, versus you know, do they want to just be off therapy, which has its own advantages. You don't need to take a pill every day, which is you know, to some extent a reminder of having um, you know, a cancer diagnosis. Um, but then there's also um, comorbidities that weigh into things. So CLL is a disease of the elderly, um, not to say it can't happen in younger patients, but a lot of patients come with um, comorbidities. And so um, the shared decision-making process also involves talking about the potential side effects of these regimens that are both highly effective, but they, they do come with different toxicities. And so um, it ends up being you know, a long conversation, but we um, kind of look into all of these factors, patient preference, comorbidity, um, and then you know, of course, access to care. And that, of course, is very different in the United States versus um, elsewhere, um, at least in the US in my own practice. And I've been very fortunate to be able to um, uh, typically have access to you know both of these options um, based on um, what what's available here. And so you know the other question then is when we are looking at a treat to progression type approach with a uh, covalent BTK inhibitor, abrutinib was the first uh, FDA approved agent, but now we have a calibrutinib FDA approved, and then zanabrutinib um, you know I would say would likely get FDA approval. Um, we'll know that in uh, January of 2023. Um, all of the drugs work fantastically well. Um, they do have important differences in their toxicity profiles. And so um, I think that is one of the um, exciting things about the newer generation BTK inhibitors, that um, they have lower um, incidences of atrial fibrillation, which we've seen on the head-to-head -head trials. Um, and then uh, calibrutinib um, has a very uh, favorable rate of hypertension when compared to abrutinib. Um, so, those are all um, things that you know matter um, for patients, especially when they come in with their own comorbidities. I certainly don't want to make those worse or create a new problem for them. No, that's uh, that's fantastic. I think that nicely summarizes kind of the frontline therapy. And I maybe just add that I think very similar practice. So what what uh, Kelly you described in my group as well. So we we discuss with the patient, give them all the options. I would say a lot of patients tend to favor VENG, venetoclax sabrituzumab, especially the younger patients because they feel they'll be done with the therapy in one year and they don't have to take a pill or one pill twice a day for the rest of their life. But I think at the end of the day, they are patients' preferences and both are, I think it's good that both are really effective therapies, right? So, and we, as you mentioned, we won't have a head-to-head -head comparison of these therapies until the trials are ongoing. It will take some time before we truly know if one is kind of better than the other. So, okay, so maybe one of the last questions to ask is that uh, we talked about Ibrutinib, Akalabrutinib, maybe Zanabrutinib, but now we have the third generation of BTK inhibitors, which are actually called reversible BTK inhibitors. Uh, we have several of them in clinical development. One of the most advanced one is pitobrutinib, previously called Loxo305. So what has been your experience with pitobrutinib and how do you think, how is that drug 
relate to maybe the other previously approved BTK inhibitors? Yeah, so um, I have a good amount of experience with pertubrutinib at my uh, prior uh, faculty position at the University of North Carolina. Um, my experience has been 100% favorable. The tolerability of that drug, I think, is unmatched with any other anti-cancer drug I've seen. Um, and, you know, it's hard to kind of glean how tolerable a drug is based on these toxicity tables that get reported. But I think one of the, I think, most uh, powerful statistics about pertubrutinib is its profoundly low rate of discontinuation due to AEs. And so, you know, when you look at the covalent inhibitors, a lot of times the discontinuation rate due to AEs is, you know, 10% or more. Um, even in, you know, short time frames, of course, it increases with time as AEs can accumulate. Uh, Pertubrutinib has a 1% rate of discontinuation. And so we have safety data now on 600 some patients where only six discontinued due to AEs. So, super impressed with um, the tolerability, but then it also has efficacy. And so um, one of the hardest to treat uh, populations is patients who have been failed by not only a covalent BTK inhibitor, but also venetoclax. And pertubrutinib has um, excellent efficacy even in that very hard to treat population where really nothing that's FDA approved has efficacy over more than just a few months. Um, so there are other non-covalent inhibitors. Um, the one that is um, the second furthest along in development is neptobrutinib, formerly called um, Arcule, ARQ-531. Um, that drug also appears to have efficacy. Um, so I do think those drugs are going to have a role um, in the future, and I think it'll be a big role. Um, first is um, in that double refractory population, as I mentioned, but you know, I do think it could um, move in earlier lines of therapy, um, especially for patients with a lot of comorbidities that you know, may not be great candidates for um, covalent BTK inhibitors, um, especially patients with significant cardiac comorbidities. Um, I think we are going to need to accumulate um, data prospective um, better than retrospective, but you know we take what we can get on um, sequencing of these therapies and can you move it into earlier lines of therapy and still have it work just as well. Um, I wouldn't think that would be a problem, but um, that'll be something I think we'll get over um, the future years. I'm interested to see if you have any other thoughts uh, to what I mentioned. No, no, I think that's uh, our experience. My experience at MD Anderson is also very similar using pitobrutinib. Um, as a drug, I think it's excellent tolerability, and I think we are seeing really dramatic responses in CLL, but also as you know, in Richter's as well, right? So yeah. single agent activity in Richter's and some of those patients can then potentially go to allotransplant if you want to consolidate them. So I think that's another, um, I think in a very important unmet medical need where we are seeing some of these activity with the third generation BTK inhibitor, right? I 100% agree, and I'm glad you mentioned Richter's because it is such a difficult disease uh, to treat. Historically, that is one of the um, ongoing roles of chemoimmunotherapy in the CLL patient population. You know, we give people RCHOP and hope for the best, and then often are just profoundly disappointed because there are either no responses or responses are really short-lived. Um, and, you know, there's toxicities with chemoimmunotherapy, and often these patients have had lots of prior therapies, they're susceptible to infections, and so um, pertubrutinib not only has efficacy in that tough population, but also um, really um, shines with regard to its safety profile. So I'm really excited yeah. to see more data in that regard as well. All right, so here we close the session. I hope you enjoyed it, uh, learning about CLL with Dr. Coombs, coming straight from Soho. Thank you all. Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at VJ Hemonk and subscribe to VJ Hemonk Podcasts on Spotify, Apple, and Podbean. Until next time.